0: This is episode 101 of the SSR Podcast. It's also the fourth and final week of Pride Month on the pod. As you know, if you've been tuning in for the last few weeks, I've been having conversations with book-loving guests from the LGBTQIA community throughout the month of June. We've been chatting about stories that made a significant impression, sometimes good, sometimes bad, on them in their younger years. I have so enjoyed hearing about how each of these titles offered my guests an escape from feeling different when they were teens, and or allowed them to see themselves represented, often subtly, on the page. Thanks to each and every one of them for being part of the podcast's first ever Pride Month. And here's to many more. On today's show, I welcome Tim Swinnerton to the pod. Tim's book choice was Rick Riordan's The Lightning Thief, which you may know better as the first title in the five-book series, Percy Jackson and the Olympians. The book hit shelves in July of 2005 and launched Riordan into kid-lit superstardom. If my Instagram DMs are any indication, I'm one of the only bookworms left on the planet who hasn't already read The Lightning Thief, so I will spare you an extensive plot summary. All you really need to know up front is that Percy Jackson begins as an unassuming kid who's resigned himself to being an underachiever as a result of his ADHD and dyslexia diagnoses and ends as a hero who's learned that he happens to be the son of the Greek god Poseidon. There's a high-stakes quest involved, too, not to mention a lot of very cool modernization of Greek mythology. I actually had very little knowledge of Greek mythology going into this read, and I learned a lot from Percy and his friends. Also from Tim. Over the next hour, you'll hear Tim share about how The Lightning Thief was the book that made him fall in love with reading. We'll consider how much easier it is for us to have empathy for villains now that we're grown-ups and break down the bright spots and issues that we see in the book with respect to diversity and representation. We swap our favorite world-building details and dive into one of the story's key questions. What does it mean to be a hero? There's a lot more than that, too, and I'm excited for you to listen. There's one line of discussion that I wanted to call out before I go any further, though. For most millennials, it's almost impossible to read Percy Jackson without drawing comparisons to Harry Potter. As a result, there's quite a bit of Harry Potter conversation sprinkled throughout this episode, which was recorded weeks before J.K. Rowling's recent round of horribly transphobic tweets. As I listened back to this episode during editing, I was painfully aware of how difficult it can be to separate the content we love from the people who make it, especially when those people prove to be so disappointing. I'd like to take this opportunity to say that trans lives matter. Trans men are men trans women are women. I too am working to figure out how to untangle my love for the Harry Potter series from J.K. Rowling's highly offensive and unacceptable behavior. The compare and contrast between the two series that Tim and I engage in in this episode is in no way an affirmation of that behavior. There is no room for transphobia, homophobia, racism, or hatred of any kind on this show. I will mention as well that there are a few very brief moments of skipping audio in this episode. You may not even notice it, but I did, and I didn't want you to think I didn't know it was there. Let me tell you a little more about this week's guest. Tim is a bookstagrammer working in publishing and living in Brooklyn. When he's not reading, he's matching his makeup to book covers, and it's very cool. You can see more of him over on Instagram at BookedByTim. If you're not already, please be sure you're following SSR on social media too. We are at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. We also have a smaller Facebook group called The SSR Podcast Community that I'm really trying to ramp up lately. Check it out. I'd love to see you there for some more extensive conversation about books and SSR episodes. This week marks the two-year anniversary of the podcast, and if you want to give SSR a little birthday gift, there are a few ways to go. Five-star ratings and reviews on iTunes would be highly appreciated, and they're really easy to give. I'd also love to see you sharing about this episode on social media. Take a screenshot of it wherever you're listening, then post that screenshot to your Instagram story, tagging ssrpod so I can see it. If you really want to celebrate big time, you might also consider shopping for podcast merch at www.ssrpodcast.com shop or coming on board as a Patreon sponsor. Patreon allows you to support independent creators like me with a few dollars every month as little as just $1 actually, in exchange for some very cool rewards and the knowledge that you're playing a key role in making your favorite content happen. SSR patrons get rewards like merch, newsletters, on-demand book recommendations, bonus episodes, exclusive voice notes, and more. A big thank you is, as always, due to the patrons listening now. I'd also like to say a big thank you to Libre FM for continuing to partner with me. As you may already know, LibreFM is an amazing platform that allows you to support independent bookstores with the purchase of the same audiobooks that you can get from bigger companies. They're the same price, too. One way we can all be better allies in the Black Lives Matter movement is to support Black-owned businesses. So as you shop for audiobooks on LibreFM, I would encourage you to support Black-owned bookstores. Here are a few Black-owned indies that are currently partnered with LibreFM: Semicolon Bookstore, Source Booksellers, Uncle Bobby's Books, and Loyalty Books. Use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. One more piece of housekeeping before we get into the show. After this episode, the pod is going on a very brief summer hiatus before hitting the ground running in year three. You won't see any new episodes for the next two Tuesdays, but there will be a bonus Q&A episode hitting the podcast feed on Friday, July 3rd. I'll be back with a hilarious Sweet Valley conversation on July 14th. If you've been listening for a while, you know how ridiculous those episodes can get. Between now and then, don't forget to catch up on any episodes you may have missed and to share SSR with the book lovers in your life. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Tim. Welcome to SSR. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You are our grand finale for Pride Month. I'm so honored. I mean, no pressure or anything, but I'm already (laughs) sure you're going to do a great job. We're talking about Rick Riordan's Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief. This was your idea to talk about this book, although I have gotten a lot of requests for it and people absolutely freaked out when I posted on my Instagram that I was reading it. So I know that there's going to be a lot of excitement for this episode. Why don't we start by you telling me a little bit about why you wanted to pick this book um, and maybe what your experience with it was when you were a kid?
1: Yeah, so this is a book that made me fall in love with reading. Um, wow. yeah. I mean, as a kid, my mom used to read to me, obviously, and she would always credit herself for my like passion for reading. But it was really when she bought me this book. Um, never in my life have I done this, but I since, but I sat down on our couch and I like opened the book and I read it an entire one sitting. And it sort of sparked my love with Greek mythology. I thought Percy Jackson was so cool and I wanted to be him. And, yeah, thank God it ended up being, like, such a long series because... I just ate up everything from there on out.
0: I love that story. So it's a long book, which I think is important to this story, because if you sat down and read this in even two or three sittings, you must have really loved it because it's like a hefty paperback. And and I can't imagine like the amount of hours that you would put in to read the whole series. So did you read every book like as soon as it came out? Were you that kind of a super fan? Oh, yeah. Wow. Okay.
1: I was. So I was obsessed with Greek mythology before Percy Jackson came out. So when when it, that hit, it was like the combination of all my interests at once. But there was this video game growing up called Age of Mythology and that's really what sparked my interest with with Greek mythology. My mom used to buy me like Encyclopedia of Greek mythology to read, and then finally when Percy Jackson came along, I uh, I was obsessed.
0: You were like primed for it. Did you study Greek mythology yeah. at all in school? Because I I one of the things that I struggled with. So I didn't read this book when I was a kid, and I can share more about like why I think maybe that happened. But um, when I was reading it for the first time recently. I realized how little I know about Greek mythology and I feel like a lot of kids maybe learn about it in middle school and I moved in middle school so I'm thinking maybe I just like missed the part of middle school where people like learn about Greek mythology. I never read the Odyssey. I feel like most kids have like a unit in seventh or eighth grade where they read the Odyssey and get like some basic knowledge of Greek mythology. I got none of that. So I was sort of learning a lot of this on the fly and I don't think it like took away from my experience, but it did make me wonder, like do all kids know about Greek mythology and am I the <laughs> only one who didn't?
1: Well, the thing that, about this series is I think for so many people, this was their entry point. Yeah. And one of the great things about the series is that it does't a, a revitalizing everything. I love how everything is updated yeah um, in the series. Like it, my my super fan moment is the is the Lotus Casino. Being the same thing as like the Lotus Island where they, on Odysseus's journey back in the Odyssey, um, they were trapped on this island and his men sort of became lazy because of the, the Lotus plant that they ate. And so the fact that that was incorporated and made into this like casino, which we already think of as like a place for lost souls sometimes was, was so great.
0: See, I'm already learning so much from you because (laughs) when we go to the Lotus Casino in the book, I was like, oh, this is sort of weird, interesting plot choice. Like the pacing is suddenly kind of strange, like maybe required and just didn't want to write about these like seven days that happened, but like kind of a fun twist. But I guess it's rooted in mythology and I had no idea. So I'm already (laughs) learning so much from you.
1: (laughs) No, And I agree with that. I do feel like since this is his first book, he sort of through it all at once there's like chimera and medusa and all the gods are there and so it's it's a lot but i'm glad that this is your entry point
0: i know it's so exciting to be experiencing it with you so one of the things that you mentioned when we were first talking and first like choosing this book you mentioned that it had been like such an escape for you as a kid and because we are closing out pride month with this episode you had mentioned in email that you felt like this book choice was applicable to your experience as a teen because it was really an escape sort of thing. And I'd love if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit more about that um, because I'm sure it's something that our listeners would love to hear. And I I think it's also a testament to the power of reading, period. Like, I think everybody has something that they want to escape. And for me, at least, books have always been that.
1: Right. And even right now, in this time period we're currently living in, I'm finding myself returning to that kind of mindset where I was in when in high school in, in grammar school when I was reading to escape things. So I think Percy Jackson, we all wanna believe that there's like a grand story. He lives sort of like a mundane life and then he gets he learns that he's the son of this like actual God and goes on adventures. And we all want to believe that we're a part of something greater. And I really identified with that as a kid who like felt lost. And just the fact that he was a part of this thing that I was already obsessed with. Yeah. It's just the the added level of escape of, I want to be this person so badly.
0: That's amazing. I can totally see that. Something that I sort of experienced this time around, and I I wonder what you think about this. And I was... uh, I was considering how maybe reading this for the first time as an adult maybe was like a disservice often with the podcast when I'm coming to a book for the first time as an adult. I'm like, I'm going to understand this better than I would have if I read it for the first time when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm going to like really see what's coming and I'm not going to have to reread things and I'm going to get it the first time around. And I found myself getting lost in this book a lot. I mean, it's super complicated plot yes it's there's a lot going on you can tell as you mentioned like it's Rick Riordan's first YA book it does sort of seem like he threw a lot at us as readers and the story behind the series is really interesting so I wonder if that plays into it at all but I was sort of confused through a lot of it and I kept finding myself trying to step back and be like okay did I miss this thread like do I need to go back and make sure I know what happened but then I was doing a little bit of reading around of like reviews and blogs about the book and sort of the consensus is that like for adults, it just seems like we are, are getting lost in the plot and what's important is just sort of understanding like the overarching storyline. Like it doesn't really matter how we get there. But I don't know. I And I, I was thinking that if I had read this for the first time when I was a kid, I probably wouldn't have cared. Like I would have just been so caught up in the action. And as you mentioned in all the interesting like modern day interpretations of Greek mythology and like just thinking that that was so cool, which it was, that maybe I wouldn't have found myself like being so wrapped up in whether or not I was like getting it. Um, So I thought that was like an interesting observation that I was having about myself um, sort of being an adult reader versus a kid reader. As a kid reader, you don't care. You're just like so lost in it. And this as an adult, I was like, uh, I don't know if I'm like missing something.
1: I agree with you a hundred percent. It's very much like point A, point B, but you don't really understand how they go in between those places, you called me out there. I was exactly that, that reader who like didn't care how anything was happening. I was just along for the ride. I was, didn't really care for the, the reasoning. I just loved what was going on in the action and the interpretations and all that.
0: Yeah, because I think what really matters in this book—and we always do spoilers on the show, so there's several spoilers coming, listeners—but what's really important here is that Percy Jackson discovers his identity. He figures out where he comes from. He learns to make some independent choices based on that information. He is sent on this big quest that is ultimately going to lead him to his father, but also hopefully to his mother— And the thing that he thought happened didn't happen, and he was sort of, like, used as a pawn in this bigger story with the gods. And so it, it didn't really matter, like, all of the inner workings of, like, who was playing him as a pawn and that's where it got a little dicey for me but if i step back and i think about those big themes like that's what's really important so um as we go through this conversation listeners if if you feel like i'm getting a little bit like lost in the details it's because i kind of did get lost in the details like there were a lot of things yeah. about the book that i liked a lot and a lot of moments that i loved But I'm not going to say that I understood every single subplot because it's a long book and I was trying so hard to keep them straight that I maybe actually like was overcompensating, I think.
1: And so many of these subplots are started without ending. Totally. And they won't end for another three books.
0: Well, that's one of the things that I loved. I feel like Rick Riordan does such a great job. And I do think this is sort of a sign of the times. The book, This book came out in 2005. And I think that he does such an amazing job of setting up the second book. Um, yes. And in those last like 80 pages or so, there's so many subplots where I'm like, I sort of starred in my book where I was like, okay, like this, he's definitely going to pick up on in book two. This he's yep. definitely going to pick up on in book two. And it brought me back to that feeling of being a kid and just like, dying to get my hands on a new installment of a book. And I think, you know, the best thing that I can compare it to, and I'd love to talk about this with you more, is Harry Potter. And I'm sure that this book has been compared to that book a million times and in a million different ways. But I would say, as a super fan of Harry Potter, like so many people, even I can say that I think Rick Riordan does a better job of, like, explicitly setting us up for future installments than J.K. Rowling does. It's very obvious how he's going to lead readers into the next book and the next book and the next book. Whereas I think J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter, it was a little bit more like, it was a little gentler. Like we knew there were going to be seven books. Obviously we loved the series. you we were going to keep reading. Yes. But I think Rick Riordan really is like, okay, this is why you're going to come back. You're going to come back because you're going to find out what happens to Grover after he goes off on his quest. You're going to come back to find out how Annabeth's year living with her dad was. You're going to find out if Percy even like survives his year living back in New York because God knows what Luke's going to do to him. Like, it was very clear to me in this book, especially in the last couple of pages, why I would want to come back to book two. Does he deliver like that on all of the other books too?
1: Yeah, and then at the end of the series you'll still be wanting more because he has an even larger thing expanding over multiple series with different characters that all come together. It's, it's insanity. But the comparison to JK Rowling, I think she has the, she has the school structure to fall back on. Like there's always going to be another year at Hogwarts. So, she didn't necessarily have to set up so much in, the, in one book into the next. But he doesn't have that like yearly structure as much. I mean, he, he has the season, so they'll come back in the summer. And I think that's one of the reasons.
0: Yeah, well, I was thinking about that a lot too, because we've talked on the podcast a couple of times because we've talked about a couple of different like boarding school stories. And obviously, like boarding schools are such a popular setting. People love yeah. to read boarding school stories. And I do think that's one of the many reasons that people have attached themselves to Harry Potter. And I thought it was kind of funny that Rick Riordan chose to do like summer camp because <laughs> I have to imagine that he was anticipating many Harry Potter comparisons with this book and I have plenty of them to make but he's like no but it's fine because they're at camp not boarding school so it's different (laughs) they have the opposite
1: schedule of Harry Potter
0: right exactly so he's like it's not the same thing like Harry and Percy are not the same Ron and Grover not the same Annabeth and Hermione not the same because they're at camp it's the summer
1: yeah I thought that was interesting you trade Ron Sphere Spiders for Anna Fear Spiders.
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. There were a lot of parallels and maybe it's just because that's my like frame of reference, having read Harry Potter so many times that I sort of had to stop myself in this book, I was making so many notes about like, this feels like Harry, this feels like Harry. And I think that's sort of where it's hard when I di- I don't have a frame of reference for reading it as a kid. So I was just like so quick to compare it to other things where in reality, it's like a really fantastic thing all on its own.
1: Yeah, I think the the, the Percy Harry comparisons are a testament to both of the writers to create something that a character that people can use as like a window to themselves. I very much like saw myself as Harry. I very much saw myself as, as Percy. And I think that's where YA shines in creating these characters that we can sort of place ourselves as within these stories. Whereas I feel like in other genres, the viewpoint characters aren't supposed to be people that like you identify with as much.
0: Yeah. I mean, Percy and Harry are both underdogs in their own ways, but yet they both have this inherent bravery and this inherent sort of craving to do the right thing and to do right by the people they care about. And they both really like to save people. Like that's something that I think we see so, so fiercely in both of them. And they're both like kind of afraid of a lot of things, but they're not afraid of saving people, which is an interesting kind (laughs) of contrast. Um, It kind of takes high stakes, I think, to bring both of them out of their shells like they're both kind of happy to live their mediocre lives until the stakes become like scary high and then they're like oh no like i'm brave now
1: (laughs) yeah totally
0: i have a question for you yeah tell me love it
1: so do you feel like reading this as an adult you felt empathy towards even like the villain characters like clarice and luke
0: oh my relationship with luke is so complicated (laughs) So, okay, Clarice, I did not really feel any empathy for, except for the fact that, like, once we learn about who her dad is, I'm like, okay, you have a lot of your own complicated issues going on. (laughs) Um, And then when you picture her sort of as part of this big family of other demigods who are also fathered by the god of war, I'm like, yeah, I mean, you probably are just trying to distinguish yourself in this crazy family. And the only way you know how to do it is to be a bully. So. I think I could sort of see where she was coming from or why she had developed the way she did, but I still didn't like her. Like, I couldn't really find love in my heart for her, even understanding that. Luke, I thought, was a really interesting character because I So I didn't see that coming with him at all. A lot of the blogs and reviews that I read recently, by adult, all said, like, we thought that that was really obvious. You know, Rick Riordan didn't do a very good job of covering his tracks on that. I disagree. I was shocked when we find out at the end that Luke was involved in um, sort of this grander plan to get Percy to Hades. And I was really surprised and disappointed because I liked him so much early on. Yeah. And I was thinking after I finished the book where I sort of feel like I think of Luke as almost the equivalent of, like, a veteran of war because you read so much in in other genres or even just like hearing anecdotes in the real world about people who fight in the military and offer their service to their country and they go off and they have these experiences that are yes traumatic but also very empowering to them. They get confidence and they get self-esteem from that being their role. They find their family within that experience. Yeah, they, yeah. they come back and then they often struggle to find their place. And often that can manifest as PTSD or just other kinds of struggles, like not really knowing how to fit back into like life before. And in that final scene with Luke at the end where um, Luke's kind of confiding in Percy about, like, I went on this quest and then I came back and, like, nobody really cared about me. Yep. When I sort of tried to think about that through a real world lens, I was like, I can picture a mortal boy who, like, joins the military when he's 18 and he goes off and he has these scary but ultimately maybe very rewarding experiences Um, and maybe that was his dream like maybe he grew up wanting to serve his country and then he comes back and at first everybody's welcoming him and like oh thank you so much for your service and then he just has to like go back to normal and you you do hear stories about the struggles that that people have and so obviously this is like a very dramatic version of that what Luke does to sort of like win back a little of that sort of adrenaline rush that I think he got on his quest but that's sort of how I was thinking about it and it made it very easy for me to have empathy for him because I feel like he just he didn't want to like let that part of his life go like he wanted he was craving that excitement and he didn't want to be forgotten
1: yeah And I think that threat is present for all the characters almost yeah. all, the, all the sons of gods sort of have this sons and daughters of gods have all this this want to be recognized and appreciated, and it's very it's very heartwarming, and it's hard for for the reader to see that Percy kind of has the journey that that Luke was always expecting to have.
0: Yeah, Luke thought he was gonna be like the most impressive demigod, and then Percy comes in and totally unseats him, and there's bound to be some resentment there.
1: But as a kid, I hated him, and I hated I hated Clarice. And I found that reading it right now, it was like much more like a Studio Ghibli movie in where I felt like I recognized the motivations for every character. And I sort of, even the, the stereotypically evil characters, I felt like I had a little room in my heart for it.
0: When you were a kid, did you hate Luke from the beginning or just at the end? At the end.
1: I didn't see the betrayal coming, even though, even though the shoes malfunctioned. I didn't see it as a point because he was so close to Annabeth as well. And I thought he was just going to be, like, this character that was, like, their cool older sibling. But, no, he ended up being the villain.
0: Yeah, I thought he was dreamy. I was like, I know that we're supposed to want Percy and Annabeth to be together. But, like, I wouldn't hate if Annabeth ends up with Luke because she clearly has a crush on him. Yeah. And I was just picturing him in my head as so handsome. So I definitely didn't see it coming. I mean, I, I sort of saw that maybe Luke would feel that resentment toward Percy. but. There is no part of him that seemed like sinister or dark to me early on. But I guess he's not. I mean, he was sort of swept up in this plan that was bigger than he was. And, you know, we don't have power over these gods sometimes.
1: Yeah. And, And then he finds himself like he's faced with a choice and it's sort of like there's no backing down. Now that he's picked aside, it's like, it's all in here.
0: Yeah, I, that was a really interesting twist. I thought that that was very well plotted, and when I read their reviews, that people were like, oh, that was so transparent. It's like, those people are much smarter than I am, because I was shocked.
1: Yeah, I, I, you think that the villain is going to be one of the gods, or Ares.
0: Yeah, so. I thought we were done once we figured out that it was Ares. I was like, that I saw coming, you know, not a big shock, but it's a middle grade YA book, it doesn't need to be this huge twist. It's Aries. We're done. Let's go back to camp. Let's celebrate. Let's play capture the flag and not have any hellhounds chasing us in the forest. Um, but no, it kept going and, and Luke was involved too. Yeah. How are
1: you going to read the future books?
0: Oh my gosh, maybe. So right now, okay, as Tim and I are recording, hopefully by the time this episode drops, the world will be totally different, but we're currently recording in late. April we're in quarantine still and um, I thought that I was gonna do so much reading in quarantine and I thought that I was gonna like have so much momentum but it's been very stop and start for me I don't know what your experience has been but I'm actually having a lot of trouble focusing on books and then that combined with the fact that somehow in quarantine my TBR is getting like really big because I'm spending so much time looking at books that are coming out so I would like to but they are long is my only thing
1: yeah they are. Are you gonna keep reading them?
0: Like, are you gonna reread the whole series now?
1: I think I think I'm gonna do it all in audio. Yeah.
0: Smart. I bet it's good on audio.
1: Yeah, because when I can't read, like, I'm in the same situation where I'm not reading as fast as I usually do. Yeah. Audio is the thing that saves me and keeps me on track with my Goodreads goal.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to get more consistent about listening to audiobooks. So we just moved um, last week. We moved to Philadelphia, and so now I'm somebody who drives, which is new and different because I (laughs) used to live in New York, and now I'm a person that, like— gets in the car potentially every day so I was thinking that driving more is going to get me more into audiobooks because I love to listen to podcasts and when I was living in New York I used to listen to podcasts anytime I walked or like took the subway RIP to the subway and now I'm like I feel like I'm gonna have so much time running errands in the car that I might need something else to listen to so I think I'm gonna try to read more audio books because people just rave about them. And it does seem like a good way to reach your reading goals. And I think that YA books read especially well on audio.
1: Yes. But audio is also way more hit or miss because it's like dependent completely on the narrator and like whether they're using a thick accent. I like all the Leigh Bardugo books because, well, she has a great narrator most of the time. And then the ones that have multiple POVs are always voiced with different Actors for each character. I like that. I super get into that.
0: Yeah, see, I don't love... And I've listened to some audiobooks where the voice actor is, like, very talented and very good at what they do. But I do get really distracted when they're, like, doing these, like, vocal gymnastics of, like, jumping between different voices from second to second. And it just... I it's I really struggle with it. So, I think that I would do better with a, an audiobook that had like multiple voice actors for multiple POVs um because I don't want to be distracted and I also don't want it. Sometimes I I think I think it's kind of funny cuz I get distracted, which I know is not the correct reaction. So, um yeah, I need to like sort out my relationship with audiobooks now that I'm like a <laughs> driver girl. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, here I am in my car. Um, Do you know the story behind this series? Have you heard at all like what Rick Riordan's inspiration was?
1: I actually don't think I do.
0: Can I enlighten you?
1: Yes, please do.
0: Okay, so I always love when I can find these kinds of backstories. So um, here's the deal. So Rick Riordan's son was diagnosed with ADHD and dyslexia. And when he was in first or second grade, I believe, he had started learning about Greek mythology in school. And Rick Riordan had been a middle school English and history teacher for years. So he was very well versed in Greek mythology. And that had been a unit that was in his curriculum for a long time. So when his son started asking for bedtime stories about the Greek gods. He was like, great, this is totally in my wheelhouse, awesome. So at a certain level, he sort of like ran out all of the quote-unquote real Greek god stories. So um his son requested more, and I'm sure that it was, it was sort of expressed in a different way because his son was in like second grade. But he basically wanted like, Greek mythology adjacent stories. He wanted stories that were inspired by these characters, but like different and fresh and exciting. So Rick Riordan, knowing that his son had been diagnosed, I know, he's like, he's a really particular audience and he knows what he likes. Um, Shout out to Haley, if you're listening, Haley Riordan, um, who seems to have been the inspiration for this whole series. So knowing that his son had been diagnosed with ADHD and dyslexia, Rick Riordan, who at this point I think had published a series of adult mystery books decided to get his, like, authorial wheels turning. And um, he came up with the character of Percy, who his son might be able to relate to because of his ADHD and dyslexia. And it was like, I think it was one or two stories that the whole thing started with. It was like one or two nights where Rick Riordan told his son about Percy and his son was like, Oh, you should write the book. And so Rick Riordan did again. I, I just love how like easy this story makes it sound like his son asked him to write it. So he just did again. This is like a very, yeah, he just sat down and wrote like a 400 page book. It was not a big deal at all. But when he submitted the book, to agents. He actually used a pseudonym because he wanted it to be sold on its own merit if it were to be sold at all. So he had these other connections in the publishing industry because he had been published as an adult author, but he didn't use his name at all. So he kind of wanted to see like if the industry would be responsive to him if he was a stranger. And as he was submitting it, he also like took the book to his middle school students and like asked for their input. So they helped him come up with like the series name and they helped him come up with a few other details I think that hadn't been in the original manuscript. And ultimately, of course, it was picked up and it was sold for enough money that he, this was the point when he actually like quit his job and was able to write full-time. So this was sort of his turning point. But I really love this story. I love that his son inspired it. Um, I love that he like had this really clear vision of how he wanted the book to be published, how he didn't want it to be connected to his adult series. And I also love that like this was the thing that allowed him to jump into his passion full-time.
1: And it's so great to hear because the ADHD and dyslexia Beat to the book when in real life is normally seen as like some kind of hindrance. I love that it was a boon for for these characters. It actually helped them read their language better. And in future books, he takes takes that and like blows it up even more. A a character comes out in in one of the future books.
0: Wow. Um,
1: Yeah, the cast and characters gets more and more and more diverse. It's really great. He's a really great author.
0: I I can already see that in this book, that his sense of diversity is much broader than maybe J.K. Rowling's is. Like, we just don't get that much in the Harry Potter series, um, which I know has been a criticism of those books for a long time. And I, I agree with you. I think it's really cool that the dyslexia and ADHD piece of this book, it's not at all a weakness for these demigod kids. In fact, it's sort of an indicator that they belong at this camp for kids that are children of Greek gods because if you have ADHD it means that you have better battle reflexes because you're better able to like pay attention to lots of things going on around you at once and if you are dyslexic or if you have dyslexia you actually are like wired to read ancient Greek instead of English because when Percy sees ancient Greek, he's like, oh, this makes so much more sense to me. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was really creative. And I would imagine that kids who have ADHD or have dyslexia or really have anything else that they feel makes them different or sets them up to sort of be behind their peers. This would be a really empowering book.
1: Right, yeah. And kids who who've lost a parent, yeah. kids who've been abandoned by parents, I feel like There's a lot there for for, for kids to relate to.
0: Yeah, and even the storyline with Gabe, Percy's mom's, husband, who is—at the beginning, it's clear that he's, like, verbally and emotionally abusive to Sally, Percy's mom, and at the end, Sally is more explicit about the fact—well, I guess Sally herself isn't explicit, but there's a moment when it becomes much clearer to Percy that there's been some physical abuse as well. I think that that was handled really sensitively, so as we're kind of talking about all of these different pieces that Rick Riordan touches on, I think it's important to call that out because— I think that it was, like, just enough for kids who have experienced that to maybe feel seen in reading this book, but not so much that a younger kid would perhaps be uncomfortable um, or would be, like, triggered by something that was totally new to them.
1: I think you're 100% right. There was enough there for, for kids to know what to look for, to feel recognized.
0: Yeah, it was like just enough yep, without no, going over the top. Yeah, totally. The one diversity thing that I wanted to talk about that I thought was not great, and I I wonder if you already know what I'm going to say, was Medusa. Mm. So when we meet Medusa, she's wearing a burqa, um, which Rick Riordan notes very explicitly. And, you know, I don't think that there was anything insidious in this detail at all. I think it was really intended to show that Medusa was like trying to cover herself like she didn't want the kids to like see what she looks like. But I guess I just wish that there had been a different description of what she was wearing because it did feel to me um, a little icky that like it, it felt very clear as soon as there was a character described wearing a burqa, I was like, oof, this is probably not going to be a good character and then I'm going to feel dirty about this. Like, it, I did not yeah. like that at all.
1: So many of the myths that he takes and, like, brings the, to the present, he does such a good job with. But that one, I agree with you, is mishandled. First of all, Medusa is, like, prime territory for, like, rewriting that that whole narrative as, like she was actually the one who was hurt and the victim in that situation. I feel like, what if she had helped them? Like, and, and, and had like, you can get a better picture of like, oh, like not everything is how, cause he, cause Percy himself is painted as, as a villain. Yeah. And then was later revealed to be a hero. I feel like she is another character that, that is painted a villain as a villain in history and is actually not. Um, But I agree with you, because for so many kids, me included, this was their first time reading about a character wearing a burka, so... I don't think that's the happiest
0: way. <laughs> yeah, a little dicey, especially for a book that came out in 2005. Um, I think it was certainly not the time to be even sort of skirting around the potential that like a character wearing a burqa would automatically signify something about who they are as a person. Obviously, that there's never a time for that. But I think in 2005, it was an especially like sensitive time. And I think you're right. It was probably the first time that a lot of American and children were reading about a character in a burqa. And so um, that felt like a big misstep to me. And it was like glaring.
1: Yeah, I agree with you, unfortunately.
0: So how did it feel to you to come back to like your friends? I mean, the way you talk about the series, it's clear to me that you were very attached to these characters, especially Percy, you're coming back to them for the first time in what I would assume is a while, unless you maybe have reread these books since. What was the experience like of like getting back in touch with them?
1: You know, it's weird. It like it didn't have the same effect. I think now that I've that I've grown up, I don't see myself in him as much anymore. Hmm. But I it did feel like driving by your your first house growing up and like looking and seeing and remembering all the things that you loved about it and the memories you had with it. I mean, it's it's good, it's great, but I wish that it was even more diverse. It becomes better in later books, but I felt, like, racially, it was very, very white, it's very straight. Those things stood out to me more now, I guess, than they did when I was younger.
0: I loved your comparison to driving by your old house. That's perfect. That's exactly what it feels like sometimes to come back to these books. I'm wondering if you would say a little bit more about kind of seeing yourself less in Percy now than you did when you were as a kid. Because I think that's a really interesting observation. I mean, I have so many of these conversations with people. But I think you're the first person who's really been able to hone in on that really specifically. And that experience of like connecting with a character so much when you were a kid and connecting with them less as an adult. Um, so I'm just sort of interested yeah. in what that felt like and maybe how you feel like you've evolved um, since you really saw yourself in Percy Jackson.
1: So when I was a kid, I knew I was different, but I didn't know what it was. And I think that is what made me connect to him in that he also knew that something was different and, and sought out what was made him different. But um, now that I've sort of realized what made, has made me different, <laughs> I can picture better stories that would would have spoken to me more. But Mm -hmm. as a kid, I was just looking for an escape, and that was an escape. And as an adult, I'm looking more specifically for representation.
0: Hmm. I think that's—you really like—I like the way that you summed that up. I think that's really interesting. Something that I noticed in this book— Because I I think it's always interesting anytime you're reading a fantasy, a YA fantasy adventure book. I love to see how authors sort of toe the line between creating fantastical worlds and then still being relatable to kids. I think some authors do it better than others. And I just love to see how authors are able to weave these like very sort of mundane, often interpersonal issues with the worlds that they're creating. So something that I noticed, especially in this book, was parent issues. Um, And because of the whole conceit here that All of these kids at the camp um, have one parent who is a Greek god and one parent who is immortal. You know, you're sort of laying the groundwork for all kinds of potential mommy issues or daddy issues, if you want to call them that. And I liked seeing how that was expressed. Annabeth, you know, has all of these insecurities about her relationship with her dad because her mom is Athena, uh, which is super cool. But her dad is like a college professor who just sort of has like no interest in what it actually means to be a demigod like Annabeth. He remarried, and he had all of these other children, and Annabeth spent one school year with him, and because she's a demigod, she like tends to attract monsters and stuff, and her dad had absolutely no patience for that. Whereas Percy's mom seems at least a little bit more in tune with like the ramifications of having a child with a Greek god, like she was more prepared yeah. maybe to deal with what that would mean. Annabeth's dad had no idea what was coming, or maybe he just, like, didn't ask any questions. Um, So he essentially, like, makes it impossible for her to stay with him and his his new family. Um, And so she's very angry, and that's why she lives at the camp full time. And I think that, you know, we talked a little bit about how kids who maybe feel abandoned can relate to this. I thought that Annabeth's story about her father was really heartbreaking, but also sort of grounded her in a way that a lot of kids could appreciate. And I I also thought Percy's relationship um, or even lack of a relationship with his father, Poseidon, was interesting because he, like, wants to meet him, but he can't tell if he actually, like, wants his approval or if he doesn't want his approval. Like, he's so mad at him that he sort of, like, wants to stand for everything that his father doesn't because this guy sucks and he left me. Um, It's very complicated, which I thought was really cool to read.
1: And I think in the end of the book, when Annabeth meets Athena and Percy meets Poseidon, it's really good because both of them have these preconceived notions that it's going to be like this huge thing and they're going to have this like conversation that's like life-changing and like I feel Poseidon is sort of like, oh yeah, like whatever. Like, hey, how you doing? That- <laughs> <laughs> We've done this like a million times before, right. and it's like a little bit disappointing. You feel you feel heartbroken for them because this is something they've been looking forward to, um, and they don't get that validation that that they've wanted.
0: I do feel like Percy ultimately got like a piece of what he wanted from Poseidon, though. Like, I feel like when he leaves Olympus, he sort of at least has that conversation with his father where he's like, you know, you did a good job. (laughs) And sometimes, like, that's all that I think we want from our parents. I mean, I'm an adult woman, and I still sometimes just, like, want my parents to be like, no, like, you did the right thing, or, like, that's what you're supposed to do. And even though it's not this big, like, emotional, dramatic moment with Poseidon, which I think is probably what Percy pictured I do feel like this very brief moment that he has with him right before he leaves Olympus, I hope as a reader and as like a Percy fan that that sort of gives him what he needed from that first meeting with his dad.
1: Well, they'll
0: meet <gasps> oh. again in Ooh. the future. Ooh. <laughs> Wait, also, I love that Poseidon was wearing a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> Can we talk and
1: about that? And was like was like a motorcycle
0: dude. I loved these details. Like, this is a whole yeah. other conversation in itself because even though I don't know that much about Greek mythology, I think I know enough to sort of, like, I know who Poseidon is. I know who Zeus is. Like, there are pieces of it that I recognize. And seeing how it was updated, it was so brilliant and so creative. Um, yeah, the, the the biker guy was great. I loved the water slot, the water park uh, setting. When I was yep. a kid, for some reason, I used to write a lot of stories set in water parks.
1: Look, water parks are magical places.
0: I fucking love water parks, (laughs) they're the
1: best. uh, Children go and their hopes and dreams are accomplished. Honestly,
0: like all of my hopes and dreams were accomplished at water park. So I loved that we got to be in a water park for a little bit. Also hilarious that Aries like took his girlfriend on a date to a water park. Amazing. I would actually love to go on a date to a water park. If my husband is listening. Feel free to take me to a water park once we're out of quarantine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is a great... First thing out of quarantine plan. Oh,
0: my gosh. Can you imagine if that was the first thing that we do out of quarantine? What's the first thing you want to do out of quarantine?
1: Oh, uh, I have a plan with my friends to get, like, absolutely sloshed. Amazing. Okay. <laughs> but the thing I, I'm most concerned about is just, like, going to New York and then all my favorite places not being anymore. more there anymore. So, The thing I want to do most is make sure all my spots are still there.
0: Well, I I understand that, and I can relate, and I will keep my fingers crossed for you. Thank you. When you go back, it's all there, because then when I come back and visit, I need to make sure it's all there, even though I don't live there anymore. I need my first visit back to feel uh, like a victory lap, so um, I'll keep my fingers crossed for you. I'll be at the water park while you're there. Me and Aries (laughs) are going to be hanging out on a water slide, me and the God of War. Um, so yeah, I loved that detail. I also loved that Olympus was at the top of the Empire State Building. I thought the whole, like, East Coast versus West Coast thing was hilarious, and it made me want to know more about Rick Riordan and, like, where he's from and if he's had some, like, scarring (laughs) experience in L.A. because (laughs) I love that the entrance to the Underworld is in, like, a talent agency in L.A., but Olympus is in New York City, of course.
1: Spoken like a true New Yorker. Yeah,
0: yeah. For sure. and Because I just like moved away from New York literally days ago, I was like, oh yes, like of course, like the highest point in in eternity that you could reach would be (laughs) at the top of the Empire State Building. But I loved the way that it was described. Like I loved that Percy got off the elevator and he was on this like floating platform and he could like see everything around him. I thought that was really beautiful. And just all the details were a lot of fun. I mean, even with the fact that Medusa's character was so mishandled Um, I loved like her setting I loved that she was like working at this statue store like for garden statues I loved again even though I didn't understand the thing with the casino I thought that was brilliant (laughs) and I'm sure kids just ate that up like this idea that there's a place that you could sort of find your way to where you would be treated like an adult and given like all of these privileges to play games and eat food and like indoor rock climb and indoor ski and do all these other cool things for free for as long as you wanted as a kid I just would have been obsessed with that I know so fun did you see the movie did they so I what I read about the movie is that it's very different than the book and that Rick Riordan (laughs) was not pleased at all with it um but as I was reading the book I think I forgot that there had been an adaptation and I starred that section in particular because I was like this would be so good in the movie
1: yeah the movie is bad I'm
0: sorry (laughs) oh okay so I won't watch it I saw that Logan Lerman plays Percy, and he also plays um, the lead in The Perks of Being a Wallflower, shout out to another SSR episode, but very different character than Charlie in The Perks of Being a Wallflower.
1: Yeah. We as a community have failed Logan Lerman, and because of that, we've been punished with Timothee's up t- show away. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That you heard it here first. That's a a good theory and uh, definitely a hot take. Also Pierce Brosnan as the teacher. I watched the trailer this morning. And I love how Pierce Brosnan just like finds himself in some of these roles where I'm like, you know, this is a bad (laughs) choice. Like, why did you do this? I don't understand.
1: Okay, it's kind of like it's kind of like Stanley Tucci, where you like when you least expect him to show up, he's there.
0: Yeah, I'm like, oh, here you are. I mean, there's not really anybody else of note in the cast. I think maybe Uma Thurman was on the list on IMTB, but she's only on screen for a very short time. Pierce Brosnan is like a fairly important character so I'm like what made you think this was a good idea I don't know one of the other things that I found while I was just reading through reviews and kind of like trying to jog my own thoughts about what we really learn in this book and maybe what teens could take from it one of the reviewers talks about how One of the messages in this book is that, like, just because you can be a hero doesn't mean that you always have to be a hero or be the hero for everyone. Um, And that's such an important Mm. lesson for Percy to learn. And a lot of this is with respect to his mom, because he sort of, after his quest, is in a position to, like, save his mom, um, to get her away from Gabe, her new husband, who we find out she's sort of chosen in order to protect Percy, he like smells so Ugh. human that like the monsters <clears throat> will stay away from their whole family, um, which is just such like a sign of her sacrificial love for him. And yep. I am curious, like, and I you know I don't know that we ever find this out, but I kept finding myself thinking like, okay, so Sally has an affair with Poseidon, and then what happens? He's like, let me explain to you what you have to do to protect our son like I, I couldn't help but wonder like how these conversations took place like were they having a cigarette in bed after and he was like so like the life of a demigod like just in case here's what you gotta know uh, yeah these are oh the my questions god, I never thought about yeah this. like how do you think that happened where she was like you know what I should marry a total asshole because that's what Poseidon told me to do
1: well let me tell you on the spectrum of first tinder date god tinder dates <laughs> I'm much more on the water park side than i am on the fathering child side
0: (laughs) well that's good to know that's like it's a good scale it's a good spectrum um and i'm glad that you've declared your spot on it on the ssr podcast for all my listeners to (laughs) hear
1: (laughs) <laughs> like my future husband right.
0: <laughs> You heard it here first, everyone. Again, like you know how to find Tim now. This sounds appealing. <laughs>
1: Alright, so we're we're going to the water park. I'm looking for my future husband.
0: Great. I will go with you. I will be your wingwoman at the water park <laughs> post quarantine. Um we don't need Poseidon because we don't want to have to have these conversations about like marrying somebody who's gonna deflect the monsters from your future children. <laughs> So Percy's in a position to basically, like, make that all go away for his mom at the end of the book, but she decides that, like, she wants to handle it herself, and she is like, I know that you could just fix this, but I need to do it. Like, it's important for me to do it. And there's sort of, like, this tongue-in-cheek epilogue about, like, how she gets rid of Gabe and how her life continues after he's gone but what do you make of that whole storyline? I think even just the whole idea of like what it means to be a hero is an interesting question that's posed in this book that Percy has to sort of figure out as he goes. Um, I think some of the decisions that he makes at the end of the book, both in the way that he does or doesn't help his mom get rid of Gabe, but also like his decision to go back to New York for the school year instead of staying at camp. I think this is all sort of part of a conversation about what it means to be a hero. And I'm curious yeah. how you think that this book communicates that to young readers
1: it's so important because throughout this this book um his mom is sort of a a damsel in distress and like a character who has had her agency taken away at every turn so to finally allow herself to the the book allow her to make her own choice and do things within her own power because like Poseidon takes her power away and hades takes her away so it's good to see her make a decision and have her own power to, to fulfill that. But yeah, I think Percy Jackson does a better job than Harry Potter on that, in that Harry Potter is the one person who can save everyone, and it, that sort of is fulfilled. But as we've already seen in this first book, and it will be continued as a thread throughout the rest, Percy can't do this on his own, and, and he very frequently needs to rely on a whole cast of characters to, to get through this.
0: Well, and the thing that I also liked about him is that he's not hard on himself. Like, he's not super broody when things don't go well, which I think is one of Harry Potter's downfalls. Like, mm. Harry Potter tends to, like, really mope when things don't go his way. And I think that, Percy is a little bit more resilient, maybe. He's a little grittier. Like, he doesn't um, have a lot of self-esteem issues tied up in the fact that, like, he's had these struggles at school. Um, He's not afraid to ask for help from his friends. He and Annabeth have some, like, verbal sparring, just because I think they're kind of flirting with each other. Um, And also, like, they have this sort of generational battle between their families. But he also kind of knows when to ask her for help. And I think Harry struggles with that a little bit more. So I liked seeing that in percy me too are you generally i'm sure this is a very hard question do you tend toward i know you look like you're mad that i'm even gonna ask it do you (laughs) tend to prefer harry potter or percy jackson Hmm. it's so hard i'm so this is a really impossible position for me to put anyone in
1: i i gotta go with percy jackson
0: wow okay all right
1: look harry potter is a cultural touchstone it's the book that you can talk to anyone about everyone's read it but percy jackson has my heart in that as we talked about previously like it does a much better job with representation and greek mythology is really it sounds so nerdy for me to say but like it was the thing that I threw myself into when I knew I was gay and like knew I was different, so I had to focus on something else. Mm. I'm going to learn everything I can about Greek mythology and become an expert on that, and that's what I'm going to do most <laughs> times but time. Um, and the fact that Percy Jackson is, is the reason that I became a reader at all, that one wins for me.
0: Well, I have yet to read the rest of the series, so I guess I'm not in a position to make a call. I think all of the answers that you shared makes a lot of sense to me why you would be team Percy. On the whole, coming back to Percy Jackson as an adult, do you feel as though it's held up for you or are you feeling mostly disappointed? Often, of course, people sort of have mixed feelings about things that have held up, things that haven't. Um, But on the whole, where do you think you land there?
1: It doesn't have the same magic as it had for me as a kid, especially as I've grown up and I've read different sort of reworkings of Greek mythology and I found them better. But I'd say where it used to be a 12 out of 10, it's now, like, a 7 out of 10 for me.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. That's, like, kind of a big drop. It's high, but that's still, like, kind of a big drop.
1: Well, just because I'm like, Percy Jackson was my favorite of the five books I read in in (laughs) 6th grade. Fair. (laughs) Now it's, it's of the hundreds of books I've
0: read. That makes sense. I did find one article in the New Yorker, which I'll, I'll include a link to it in the show notes for this episode, where the um, the author argues that, you know, there's, of course, this whole debate about, like, whether we should sort of push kids towards certain books, or if we should just be, like, happy that they're reading, period. Um, yeah. And that like, no matter what kind of book makes the kid a reader, the point is that it's made them a reader, and, like, we shouldn't really put a value judgment on that. But this um, author argues that as much as it's really awesome that Rick Riordan has introduced kids to the worlds of Greek mythology and she sort of like credits him single-handedly with the fact that kids now like dress up as Greek gods for Halloween instead of like Iron Man. She was saying how she worries that books like this might make kids less interested in learning about quote-unquote real Greek mythology, which I guess I just oh. don't agree with because I as an adult who like admittedly, doesn't know that much about Greek mythology. When I was reading this, I was like, oh, I feel like I need to learn more about this. But I guess what she's saying is that, like, if you have this super cool contemporary take on the Greek gods, like, why would you go back to the classics? What do you think about that? I mean,
1: the classics have a lot of issues themselves. True. I don't know if we need to be steering kids towards, like, those kind of stories. True. But I think it all starts with whatever can get a kid interested in learning more. I mean... That's what it did for me. I I was already a super fan before it, but that just like brought it to the next level. And in the future books there were things that happened that I didn't know were like related to mythology and then I would return to the source material and, and learn more about it. And there were gods I'd never heard of. I think even in the lightning thief, there's the god that makes him fall asleep yeah and i had I had no clue about anything about that. And I didn't know anything about the Oracle of Delphi before reading um Percy Jackson and then all of the information that I've gotten since then was because I was inspired by that cultural touchstone.
0: I think more than almost any other book that I've read for the podcast as an adult, I can see how this book would really change a reluctant reader's life and a reluctant reader's mindset toward reading. So I think, as of this moment, I think that Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief might win, like, the SSR award for, like, best book to give a reluctant reader.
1: Yes! That, it's the book that, growing up, I had a whole bunch of younger boy cousins, and my aunts would always ask me, because I was, like, a voracious reader, they'd be like, what book do I have to give them to, like, make them read? And Percy Jackson was the one that, like— they always actually ended up did reading.
0: Yeah, I've never given an award on SSR before, but I feel like this is the right moment to do it. It's a historic it's, uh, moment to share. <laughs>
1: I'm, I'm I'm witnessing history.
0: You really are. So, other than <laughs> Percy Jackson. What have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners in the spirit of recommending books to your cousins when you were a kid? It doesn't have to YA or middle grade. It can just be whatever you're especially loving lately.
1: Well, anyone who loves Cersei Jackson must, 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 must read Madeline Miller's The Song of Achilles and Cersei, of which I have a tattoo.
0: Oh my gosh, Um, you do. Wait, let me see. (laughs) <laughs> That's beautiful. Sorry, listeners, Thank we're you. talking on Skype, and that is a beautiful tattoo.
1: Um, the tattoo has. Uh, well, the artist hadn't didn't know who Cersei was at all. And he was like, oh, can I make half the face more realistic and half the face like the cover of the book? And I was like, oh, my God, go for it. Because if you've read the book, you know, her decision at the end really is mirrored in that. So anyway, but those are other examples of Greek mythology being reworked in feminist and queer, queer ways that are amazing.
0: I have to read those. I'm sort of embarrassed to admit that I have not read them yet. Cersei has been on my TBR for, like, a really long time, and I just need to read it. And maybe now's the time since I just finished The Lightning Thief.
1: Definitely, because... She is the character in The Odyssey and, there's, and The Lightning Thief has a lot of The Odyssey touchstones in it.
0: Well, I will include links to both The Song of Achilles and Cersei in the show notes for this episode, along with a link to The Lightning Thief, along with links to find you, Tim, online, because I'm sure that our listeners are going to want to go follow you if they don't already. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for being my guide on this first experience with Percy Jackson. I feel like I have finally, like— had an experience with a cultural touchstone, as you've called it, and I'm finally caught up on something that I was very behind on from my own teenage years, um, and I could not have done it without you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. If you read the later books, message me. Oh,
0: we'll have to have a whole other episode, a whole other talk about it.
1: You know I'm in.
0: All right, great. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Bye. Bye.